This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. And we're going to talk this afternoon about David's massive dream to build the house of God. And you might think of 1 Chronicles as a dry and uninspiring part of Holy Scripture. It is nothing of the sort. And though it's in the middle of our Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually the very last book. It's a single book, and it's this theological summing up of everything that has come before. And the lesson of Chronicles is this. If you forsake the Lord your God, things are going to end in disaster and catastrophe. But... If you seek the Lord your God with all of your heart, you will be blessed and he will draw near to you. And that's a lesson not just for the people of Israel hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but obviously for us today. So we're going to read one verse, the first verse of chapter 8, and then the first 20 verses of chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 28. Did that give you guys enough time to find it? It's also on the screen over here. Here is the word of the Lord. David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem, the officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors, and all the brave fighting men. And now jumping to 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave towards the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth 
is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers, they bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the King. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the culmination of many years of work by King David. It had taken him, first of all, many, many years simply to come to the throne of Israel. And they were long and dangerous and hungry years as David, anointed by God through the prophet Samuel, was fleeing for his, for his life, hunted by the paranoid King Saul, hiding in caves, living off the land with his band of ruffians, hiding out with the Philistines, feigning madness and letting spit dribble into his beard so they wouldn't catch him and kill him. It had been a long and dangerous road that David had walked. But God had miraculously preserved David, through all those dangers and toils and troubles, and at last King David had come to the throne. And God gave David 40 long, full years reigning over the people of Israel. And now we're at the end of David's life. And after David had been settled, his enemies had been conquered, there was peace all around he was in his, his palace in Jerusalem, and he was feeling discontented. He looked around, and he said to himself, Why am I living in this house of fine cedar, and the Lord my God is living in a tent? In his heart, David felt this was wrong and inappropriate. And so he had this desire that he expressed to Nathan the prophet, I want to build a glorious temple for my God. And Nathan was so excited, he felt no need even to ask the Lord for his advice. This is clearly from God. He said, yes, the Lord is blessing you. Go ahead and do it. And then that night, David appeared to Nathan and said, not so fast. Actually, I don't want David to build this house because he is a man of blood and of violence. And my house must be built by a true prince of peace. And a lesser man than David would have sulked 
and been resentful that this project, this dream of his heart, was not something that he would have the joy of completing. But instead, David decides, if I'm not allowed to build this temple, I can do everything short of building the temple. And he starts collecting. He starts amassing things. He starts collecting iron, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of tons of iron. He starts making nails. He, start, he sends out 30,000 workmen to chop down trees so they can have the finest cedar wood ready for this temple. He buys the land. He chooses the location. And that's a story in itself about the plague of the Lord sweeping through the land. And it is stopped at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David makes a sacrifice. He buys the land and he says, this where God has met me is going to be the site for the temple. And then David starts collecting workmen. He starts collecting iron workers and miners and craftspeople and carpenters and skilled craftsmen of every kind. Craftspeople that could not be numbered. This massive army of skilled workers and artists are being prepared and set aside and held in reserve for Solomon to launch to organize the building of the temple. And then David organizes this huge bureaucracy. A whole set of administrators of different levels and layers is created, and you can read the previous chapters here to read their names and how that was all organized. And then David sets up the temple service. He organizes the priests and the Levites according to their families. He sets up the musicians and the gatekeepers. And keep in mind, the temple has not even been built yet, but David already has this thing ready to be staffed on day one. David has done everything possible for this temple to be glorious and awesome. And most importantly, David has taken Solomon aside to instruct him and prepare him. And Solomon is young and inexperienced, but he is the man that God has specifically said is going to be the one to succeed David and build this temple. And David sits his son down and speaks to him very firmly and clearly. And he says, son, there's two things that you need to keep in mind. Number one, be strong and of good courage. It's what God kept on telling Joshua when he had to enter the promised land and conquer the Canaanites. You're going to be afraid. You're going to be timid. You need to be strong and of good courage, son, to undertake this massive task. And the second thing, Solomon, is this. Seek the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And if you are a seeker after God's heart, if you are a man of courage, whatever happens, God will bless you and give every success. And now David's long reign is drawing to a close. There's a Russian proverb, I'm told, that even the greatest of kings must at last be put to bed with a shovel. And David's time is coming. He is an old man when this speech happens, probably in his 70s. And then again and again throughout the Old Testament, you find the last speech of great leaders, Moses and Joshua and Samuel. And now it's time for David, this weak old man who can't even keep himself warm in bed at night by himself anymore, is now standing before all these people that he has gathered together for his last will and testament, one final exhortation to give to the people of God before he is gathered to his fathers. And he tells them this, my son is young and inexperienced and the task is great. This is a huge 
undertaking, far exceeding any kind of public works project that we've ever attempted before. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, it's for God. That is a sentence worth underlining and highlighting in your Bible. The task is great because this project, this palatial structure is not for man, it is for God. William Carey, the great missionary to India, famously said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. And that is the very heart of King David because he knows that the measure of our worship is not our humanity but God's divinity. We cannot measure and limit it according to our human limitations and expectations. Our worship, what we do for God, needs to be massive so it can be worthy of our massive God. We should not be satisfied with small things and tiny projects and safe and easy tasks. We need to be attempting great things for God like King David did. And as he says earlier in this book, the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. David's dream is for the surrounding peoples, the enemies of God, but the ones for whom God has called Israel to be a blessing. He wants them to look at Jerusalem and their mouths to hang open at the fame and splendor and magnificence of this building, which points to the worthiness and power and awesomeness of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the huge ambition in David's heart. And it's ultimately a missionary impulse, isn't it? This temple is not just for the private enjoyment and pleasure of a small group of Jews in a tiny country in the Middle East. David's heart given by God is global. It's a heart for the nations to come to Mount Zion to worship the God who is worthy of everything. That is what is in David's heart. And he's not doing this as a personal legacy project with his own name ascribed over the entrance. This is not for himself. It is for the glory of God alone. And that inspires David to attempt something massive. And David makes clear in chapter 28, this vision and the details of this vision were given to him by God. The hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And just like Moses was given the plans for the tabernacle, David by the Holy Spirit is given God's own vision for the kind of house that he wants to dwell in. And David is very insistent that it's going to be built exactly how God has described. All that gold for the gold work, silver for the silver work, and so on is not just David multiplying words. He's saying, if God told me to build it in gold, in gold it shall be built. If God told me to do it in silver, we're going to do it in silver. We're not cheaping out. We're not using some convincing substitute. We're going to do the job properly. Michelle was reminding me today of being in Rome a few months ago with her cousin Tony, and they were visiting the, uh, the ecstasy of St. Teresa in 
the church of Santa Maria della Vittoria in Rome. I love Italian. What a beautiful language. <laughs> and it was a beautiful and impressive building. But Michelle, who's been trained in the art of stagecraft and theater work, looked a little more closely at the marble and realized this is not actually marble. It's been painted on. She didn't actually wipe it off, but she realized there has been a very clever artist at work in this project offering to save whatever prince or noble person built this, this church. I can save you a ton of money. A lot of the stuff is going to be on the ceiling or on faraway walls that are roped off that people are not going to see them close up. And you can save a lot of money by just drawing it on there. It's going to be a lot easier. We'll just Photoshop the whole thing up there. And this is not the kind of temple that David wants to build. He is building this thing at huge expense, and he's going to make sure that it is built just as expensively and lavishly and magnificently as God has directed him to. There's a story of a craftsman in the Middle Ages working on his back on some tiny little carving way up in the ceiling of one of those massive, massive Gothic cathedrals. And he was working away on this very detailed fine work for weeks and weeks. And his fellow workers asked him, why are you spending all this time? No one is going to see your little carving behind that beam over there. He said, ah, but God will see it. And that was the vision that drove the architects of the Middle Ages to build these soaring structures to the glory of God. And this is the vision that drives King David. This is not for the pleasure and benefit of the people. Primarily, it's an offering to God. And we're going to do this job right. And he lists all these different fine materials, and he emphasizes all these stones, all this onyx, all this silver and gold, I gave in large quantities. When you look at the measurements and translate talents into modern equivalents, we're talking about hundreds of tons of gold and silver. Dump trucks, swimming pools full of gold and silver, just a massive, mind-boggling amount of valuable material being given for the temple. And these accounts are so enormous. There are few things that equal them in the ancient world. One thing that does exceed them was Alexander the Great when he surged through the Persian Empire and conquered the capital city of Susa. These were the kind of numbers in terms of gold and silver that he managed to capture. And somehow this small little kingdom is marshalling enormous amounts of resources. And David, of course, was a man of war, and God gave him victory after victory. And as David went around plundering and looting the enemies of Israel, he wasn't blowing that all on Amazon and eBay. He was saving all that stuff up for this project in his heart for God. And David emphasizes he personally gave. It's easy to give out of the state treasury to spend your business's budget that you work for. But to give personally, this is what King David was doing. Everything he had amassed personally, he now shoves it forward and says, all of this is going to be for God. And this is just the character of David, because if you go back to that story of David offering to buy the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, Aruna says, you're the king. I'd be honored to just give you this piece of land. And David says, I refuse to take your land as a gift because I will not offer to the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. 
David wants the privilege of giving himself, not just as a professional figurehead, but as someone personally invested, a true lover of God himself. And then David says this. He looks all these men, all these leaders in the eye and says, now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? David has brought these people together for a personal challenge and a personal invitation. They're not meant to be a mere audience for David's vision and his generosity. They are themselves invited to come forward. And they do. They surge forward, eager to share in the work of God. They're not trying to avoid David's eye contact. Oh, I hope he doesn't ask me, the old king. This could get a little, is he going to start crying? What's going to happen here? They are excited and eager to share in this project of the king that they love so much. And they surge forward and what they give exceeds even what David himself had given. And this kind of behavior, sadly, is not always typical of those who labor in the kingdom of God. And we might well expect these leaders and bureaucrats and army officers and temple officials to have that callous that professional workers in the kingdom of God tend to have. They might even have looked at this as a huge project for which they themselves could personally do very well. But there's nothing of the sort because David's example is so noble and so inspiring, not just this one moment, but his entire life, that the people, the leaders are eager to follow the example of their king. Because you know what? Words are cheap. And without a personal investment, words of worship are just sounds coming out of a hole in your head. God wants the heart and he wants real sacrifice so he knows that we truly do love him and we're not just talking. And when the leaders do this, when they come forward offering all their gifts and their own hundreds of tons of gold and silver and anyone who had precious stones just tips their jewelry box into the treasury, then the whole people rejoice. The people rejoice and they're glad and excited to see their leaders responding to God this way. And so does David. He rejoices along with them. And I expect this was a great relief to David when this happened because during the long years of amassing all this stuff and organizing all these workers, he may well have had some self-doubt It seemed pretty clear that God spoke to me, but 10, 20 years into this, is this just some bizarre personal projects of my own? Is this just me? Is everyone else hearing the Lord differently? And what a joy for David to see. No, it wasn't just me. The whole people of God are coming forward to offer themselves to the Lord. And notice, they're not just offering money. They're responding to David's invitation to consecrate themselves to the Lord. Who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Because what God is after is not your cash, ultimately. He's after you, yourself. That is what God is after. And that is what the, how the people respond. So after this amazing, crazy expression of generosity and lavish, magnificent giving, 
David cannot help but praise the Lord. Because David, more than anything else, is a worshiper of God, a true man after God's own heart. And you know, it is possible to be so immersed in the work of God that we neglect the worship of God, isn't it? And I've been pastoring this church for just over a year now. And I feel in many ways like I worship God less than when I was just an ordinary Christian because I can get so immersed in doing the stuff, doing all the church stuff and leading prayer meetings and writing sermons and organizing all these different things. And it's so easy to forget the true heart of worship for ourselves when we're involved in leadership. And that was not a temptation that marked David's life because here is this man, a king ruling over a nation, a warrior prince, and yet psalm after psalm after psalm flows from David's heart. He dances with abandon before the Lord his God because he is a man full of love for his God. And then David gives us this truly magnificent prayer. And there's a reason it sounds a little familiar because part of David's prayer has been tacked on to the Lord's prayer that Jesus taught us. If you read the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and Luke, it ends with, do not lead us into temptation, protect us from the evil one. That's where the prayer ends. Yours is the power, the glory, and the kingdom. That actually comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and it is a worthy prayer to be added on to the Lord's Prayer because it is just this explosion of love and worship to God. David worships God because God is exalted over all things. God is supreme and he soars far above the greatest thing we can imagine on this earth. David is a man wholly captivated by the glory of God. And it's the white-hot holiness, the awe-inspiring majesty of God that is what is inspiring this whole building project. David is not building because he's bored and has itchy hands and just wants to be putting things together. It's all a project driven by worship. David is not doing this to find something to do in the long winter evenings, nice little project that his wife or his many wives are urging him to do to keep himself busy. This is something driven by love and worship for God. God is exalted over all things, and God is the source of all good. Everything good in this world comes from the hand of God. Wealth and honor, strength and power. David sees it all pointing back to the gracious hand of God. And therefore, David says to God, look, God, what we've given you, it's only what you've given to us. Yeah, we're digging up gold and silver, but it was you who put that stuff in the ground in the first place. We're chopping down all these cedars, but you were the one who caused them to grow. And we are hiring tens of thousands of craftspeople, but you are the one who made their fingers skillful. It all comes from your hand, O oh God. So all this magnificent giving, David isn't congratulating himself for his heroic generosity and his inspiring leadership. It all comes from the hand of God. Everything comes from God. And everything we give God is only what he has first given to us. And no matter how much we give to God, we always find ourselves in the position of 
receivers. We're always receiving from God. And God ultimately is the highest and only giver. And God is and always will be far more generous to you than you can ever be to him. The true lavishness and magnificence and splendor is not what David and the people gave to God, but what he had already and always been giving to the people of Israel. And here were these people, this small little tribe, foreigners and strangers wandering the world like shadows without hope. And now God has given them the possibility of participating in the building of something massive, something that would endure for the ages for the worship of the most holy God. See, David knew that we need to trust the giver and not the gift. And the danger with money and gold and silver and all this stuff is that our eyes turn away from the God who gives all that to trusting in those things ourselves. And we find it hard to release our fingers from those things because we've forgotten that it all comes from God and it's all going back to God anyways in the end. And this giving that, that David and his people are experiencing, the giving itself is a gift from God. The giving itself is a gift from God. Who are we to give as generously as this, David, David says? David is overwhelmed by the privilege of helping God build his house. And there is, in one respect, no need for any of this, no need for any of these long, detailed lists and chapters and chronicles because God could have just made all the silver and gold and onyx and precious stones rain down from heaven. The temple itself could have sprang up from the earth in an instant at the word of God's command. But yet, God wants to do things differently. And he wants to involve David and David's people in the joy of participating in building the house of God. And David is awed and overwhelmed and humbled at the privilege of working with God on this temple. And then David says, God, you are pleased with a willing heart. God loves the willing heart. And God could, of course, just take all of our money away. He could empty our bank accounts instantly if he chose. But God wants a willing heart and people who give freely and spontaneously and joyfully. You notice how much joy there is in this chapter? This is a real party chapter. And that's what God wants. People overwhelmed with love and pleasure in their nearness to God that they just give spontaneously and freely. And then David prays, Lord, may this not just be a one-off, a glory day that we remember for a while and then fades into history. God, keep the thoughts and the purposes of your people. Keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever. Not just for me or my son, but for our descendants forever down through the generations. And Lord, give my son Solomon, this young and inexperienced man, Give him wholehearted devotion to finish this project. And then King David says, praise the Lord. And everyone falls on their faces and they praise the Lord, the God of their fathers. 
And then if we kept on reading a few more verses in this last chapter in First Chronicles, we'd find Solomon crowned the king and David dies. He's gathered to his fathers in a good old age. So how does this chapter speak to us today, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later? And of course, there is one direction I could take this in. I could speak of we ourselves having great dreams and plans and ambitions for God and attempting great things for God ourselves. And there is some truth to that. But the point in this chapter is this. What is the king's dream for God? And all these thousands of workmen and administrators and craftspeople, they, I'm sure, had some scope for personal creativity, but always the question they had to ask themselves was, what was the plan that King David gave us? What are the blueprints that he received from God? And all these people were not following a personal revelation, a private vision for themselves. They were caught up in a great task that the king was leading the people in. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, God promises that he is going to raise up a son for David who would build the house of God and establish the throne forever. And of course, Solomon in some degree fulfills that, but a king, a son of David greater than Solomon has come and is here. And this is King Jesus, great David's greater son. And God has laid a great ambition on King Jesus' heart. He has laid a great ambition on his heart. And Jesus' dream is to build a temple. To build a temple out of living stones. And those living stones are you and I and the whole people of God that Jesus is gathering from the ends of this earth and assembling together to be a house for the praise of God. We are something far more costly and precious than hundreds and thousands of tons of gold and silver and precious stones, people made in the image of God. You might find First Chronicles a dull book because there are a lot of genealogies in, in this book. Many lists and lists of people and all these strange names. And I have to tell you, there is glorious grace in those lists because though they might not mean much to you, I'm sure they meant a great deal to those people whose names were on the list. And their descendants 500 years later after the exile when Chronicles was written. People matter to God. And even though we might skip through those chapters, God does not skip through those chapters. And I imagine God himself taking the book of Chronicles down off the shelf and reading through with pleasure those who served him in their own generation. People matter to God and he is building his temple, a place for him to live out of you and I. What seem like the most humdrum and ordinary of people are being built together by Jesus into a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And like King David, Jesus is not the kind of king who builds this temple by squeezing and exploiting his workers while he lives in comfort in his palace. Jesus is building this temple at massive 
personal expense. No one is as invested in the kingdom of God as Jesus. And he went and he died. He paid his own precious blood to purchase you to be built into God's temple. And this is going to be no small and modest temple. This is a temple whose magnificence and glory and splendor are going to draw in the nations. And this temple is going to be built on a scale that makes Solomon's temple look like nothing. Jesus' vision is global and cosmic, and all of history is being governed for this temple that Christ is building and that we get to be a part of. And just like King David asked, King Jesus asks his people and the leaders of his people who will consecrate themselves to the Lord today. Jesus, he's personally invested, but he's not hoarding all the work for himself. He's not the only one who participates in building this temple. All of us are invited and challenged to participate in what Christ is doing in this world. And I hope, I pray, that we all surge forward to give because we love the King, because our hearts are full of admiration and worship for our King who loves us so much. And just like David's heart rejoiced and was glad because of this magnificent giving of his people, we have the opportunity to give, to bring joy to the heart of Christ. Is that not an amazing privilege? That when we give, when we sacrifice, when we participate in whatever way we can, the heart of Jesus rejoices over us because he sees grace at work in our hearts. And we too are wanderers and sojourners in this world, living like shadows. And we are spending our money and our time and our energy and all kinds of things that ultimately will not last. But we are offered the possibility of helping build the one thing that will last. This magnificent temple that is going to be filled with the glory of God forever and ever. And we don't want to cheap out. We want to build with gold and silver and costly stones and not with hay or straw because this temple, what we build is going to be tested and a match will be thrown in and what burns, burns and what doesn't burn is going to survive for the glory of God. So here we are as a church. We're about to have a budget meeting after this and this is a deeply spiritual matter and it matters tremendously to God, not because God cares about money, The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him, but because he cares about you and your heart, and he wants you to consecrate yourself freely and joyfully to God. See, our offering baskets need to be a lot bigger. They need to be so big that you yourself can climb in and give yourself to God. That is what God is after, however and whatever you can give. And you may not be a skilled craftsman, but you can go into the mines and take that pick and dig up some iron, surely. And you may not be an an elegant musician, but you can at least be a doorkeeper 
in the house of God, which is better than a thousand days elsewhere. See, God wants us to give willingly and joyfully, to give whatever the Spirit of God has laid on our own heart, whatever you've decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because you're being guilted or shamed into it, not because you're worried about what those around you are going to think, not because you're scared of God and you're worried that if you don't give enough, he's going to punch you in the face. God invites you to give because he wants you to participate in the joy of giving that is all about the very heart of God himself. God is an overflowing fountain. It is the nature of a fountain to overflow, and it is the nature, the very nature of God to overflow with goodness to all of his creation. And when we ourselves begin to be outpourers and overflowers, we are becoming like God himself. And we find, as God himself knows, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is not the end of the story. We could keep on reading in Chronicles. If you turn to chapter 7, you can read what happens when young King Solomon dedicates the temple. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 to 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and gave thanks to God, saying, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray and seek the face of God ourselves. O Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. All things belong to you, power and dominion and strength and glory and honor. It is all from your hand. O Lord, open our eyes by your Holy Spirit so that we might see your glory and your splendor. Forgive us for worshiping such a small God. Forgive us for loving ourselves and our own idols and security instead of spending ourselves extravagantly for the God who gives us everything. Lord, I pray that you would fill this place, fill our hearts as you filled the temple of old, that we might know you near and present and with your people. Lord, open our hearts to give as you have given to us, so that this church would not be a church of contraction and lack and want, but a church of expansion and growth because we are fired by ambition for the spread of your gospel in this world, for the building of a most holy temple to the glory of your name. Oh Lord, we ask for your grace. We worship you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and exult together in the glory of our great God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.